that became part of the way of talking about this was to talk about healthcare and human rights because whether you're a Zionist or not, you know it's not okay for women to deliver at a checkpoint and bleed to death. You know, that's like not okay in anybody's book. So it's, it was like a vehicle to be able to talk about this. And um, the way that I dealt with the, the level of sort of secondary trauma that I was having being there was to write. Welcome to the Miko Peled Podcast. In spring 2023, Miko Peled met with Dr. Alice Rothschild in Seattle for an interview. Alice Rothschild is an OBGYN who served patients in Boston for decades. She also led medical delegations to Palestine, including the Gaza Strip, and is a longtime active member of Jewish Voice for Peace. She's written several books and created the documentary Voices Across the Divide about the Nakba. Her most recent book is Finding Melody Sullivan, about a 16-year-old American girl who visits Palestine. Links to her books, her social media, and her website can be found in the description. Enjoy the interview. Alice Rothschild, thank you so much for uh, meeting me and hosting me at your home and serving wonderful dinner. Great, my pleasure. You've written books, you've made a movie, you're active on Palestine, you're a feminist, you're really an incredible person with a lot to say and a lot to offer. So I really appreciate your time in, in doing this interview. I want to mention your website, alicerothschild.com and alicerothschildbooks.com. Um, so you're not part of the Rothschild clan, the famous Rothschild clan. Let's get that out of the way. And just maybe just start by telling me about you a little bit, your background and who you so are, um, you from? I'm uh, the daughter of first-generation immigrants. They're, my grandparents came from Eastern Europe. My parents grew up in Brooklyn. Um, they fled Brooklyn as soon as they could. Um, and I grew up in a small New England town. And um, it started out being sort of Paul Revere made the bell in the church kind of town. And over the course of my uh, young life, about 10,000 Jewish people moved into the town, all fleeing from the ghettos of... Uh, Brooklyn and Boston, and okay. um, so it was an unusual town to grow up in. And uh, so I went to Hebrew school three days a week. I had a bat mitzvah. My family went to Israel when I was 14, and it was just a miracle of our lives to see this fabulous country. Um, so I came from a very traditional place. My mother was an author, um, so I had a whole big dose of the Holocaust and immigrant experience because that's what she wrote about mm. at a very young life and was very aware of those issues very early. But she didn't experience it. She wrote no, about other she wrote about it. She did an oral history. Um, her, her book is called Voices, Voices from the Holocaust, and my movie is called Voices Across the Divide, and I was mirroring my mother oh, and oral history. And then, I mean, right now you write, and you made a movie, we made a, we made a, you made a movie, and we'll talk about your book, but you're, you went to medical school. Yeah, so I went, first of all, I went to Bryn Mawr College, and then I went to medical school at Boston University. I was going to be a psychiatrist, and then I met some psychiatrists who were the most Freudian sexist doctors you could <laughs> possibly imagine, and I had a major life crisis at the second year of medical school. And I thought, what can a feminist woman do in medicine? I was in medical school before the wave. There were like 10 of us in medical school, women in my class out of 110, that kind of wow. number. So I went into obstetrics and gynecology, and I went into it not because I had met any obstetrician gynecologist that I 
wanted to be like, I went into it to blow it up, basically. And so that's what I did. And then did you, where did you work? Uh, well, I did my training, and then I opened up a practice with some friends in uh, Boston in the inner city, which got gentrified, and it is no longer the inner city. And so we had a practice that was partly working in health centers, uh, partly um, private practice. You know, all the feminists of Boston came to us. And also, since it was in the inner city, we had poor people of all stripes and colors and flavors come. And that went on for about nine years. And then we all had had like at least two children and we were exhausted and on call a lot. And we joined a big HMO um, in Boston and that's where I worked until I retired. Hmm. So I can't help noticing a, a feminist socialist tone in your, in your story and, and in your voice. Can you talk a little bit about that? Where does that come from? Well, you know, I, I had a liberal-minded family. Um, but my college was not that political, although it was a women's college. Um, but I grew up during the Vietnam War and uh, the Civil Rights Movement, and so I was aware of what was going on. And I did um, my medical training. Um, probably the most important year was at Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx, where I got very radicalized by what I saw in terms of the um, inequities in healthcare and dealing with poor people and people who had, were amazingly resilient and had no resources whatsoever. And so I got more and more radical as this went on. And when I went into obstetrics and gynecology, that's uh, an experience that will make any sensible woman a feminist, because <laughs> uh, the, the, the field was so uh, backward and so um, hostile to women. So, so I came upon it through my own experiences, through you know, consciousness raising groups, through trying to figure out how to survive in basically a man's world. So what do you mean by radicalized, And first of all? And then I want to ask you why it was that you say being an OBGYN as a woman made you a feminist. So, but first, if you could answer well, both Well, you know, those. I went to medical school because I wanted to help people. Right. I didn't have a, a political framework. Right. So then I discovered the realities of the healthcare system and the realities of a profit-making system. And I discovered other kinds of healthcare systems. And so I got much more political in how I approached the healthcare as a system of providing care for people. And then I go into this field where, you know, women are called girls and, you know, people get patted on the head and they're there, dear, and have some Valium, you'll feel better. And, you know, just sort of a very um, disempowering attitude towards women. And I also got involved with um, the folks who were writing Our Bodies Ourselves, which is, became the sort of feminist Bible of the American, of women's movement in the United States. And I was one of the, the students who was reading the text and making sure it was medically correct and that kind of thing. So that whole exposure really changed me as well. I started living in a commune. I mean, I did all these sort of 60s, 70s things uh, that moved me to the left and made me much more aware of how women are disempowered in the system and how to make that change. So when you say radicalized, you mean politicized? Yeah. 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 Now, you, you said you visited Israel when you were young with your family. Your family was Zionist. Mm -hmm. You live in the commune. You never went to a kibbutz, though. You never went to Israel um, to experience the kibbutz. No, my family visited a kibbutz when we were there. But that wasn't part of your experience. No, no, you no, didn't no. think you no, wanted no. to go. No, 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 no. Was there a reason why you didn't, or you just didn't? Um, was it, it a just, conscious thing? You no, know, I was one of. When I was six years old, I said, "I'm going to be a psychiatrist." I have no idea why I knew about psychiatry. Right. So I was very goal oriented. I, you know, wrote a paper on schizophrenia in ninth grade. I majored okay. in psychology in college. I went right to medical school. I didn't stop training until I was like in you know, my 30s. So I it just, okay. I, I never took a gap year. I just, right. I was a little laser beam kind of person. Perfect medical student. 
right. And then the 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 place where our lives and our lives merge is Palestine. Mm-hmm. And being Jews who are outspoken about the Palestine issue, but yours, you're 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 you have a niche within that. You're very specific in 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 what you do with that, and it's unique. So, can you talk about why you got started with it, how you got started, sure. and became aware? So, you know, as a, a lefty <clears throat> kind of person with, you know, an increasing understanding of colonialism and imperialism and you know, World War II and history and all those kind of things. I grew increasingly uncomfortable about Israel. I didn't know enough about what was wrong, but I knew something was wrong. What made you uncomfortable initially? Um, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure. I, you know, I think it was something about having a Jewish state was uncomfortable to me, but I didn't have the, the knowledge base and the analysis to, to really understand what the problem was, but I knew there was a problem. And then um, as Israel was approaching its 50th anniversary, um, I got together with a group of people in Boston uh, with the Workers' Circle, Kahil Bayra, New, New Jewish Agenda, um, and we started talking about what was going on. And um, we actually uh, uh, participated in the Israeli 50th anniversary. We had a peace forum with a Palestinian and a lefty rabbi and a radical Israeli. And you know, we started getting more knowledgeable and more active. Um, my main education was listening to Palestinians tell their stories, and we just did that over and over again. Where did that start? Where did you hear, um, where did you hear Palestinian stories? Uh, in my house on the third floor where we had meetings. I mean, we just networked in the Boston community and found Palestinians who wanted to talk. And um, we also got a big education from Rahama Martan, who founded Physicians for Human Rights Israel. Um, and we got a very quick, you know, I started reading the new Israeli historians and doing what you have to do to get knowledgeable. Um, and then what happened was that we thought, my God, people need to know about this. You know, we need to start doing programs and things in synagogues and libraries. And we had no idea what was going to happen to us. Um, and uh, shortly after that, we got really blacklisted in the Boston area. We, who was we again? You... This little grassroots organization, mm-hmm. Visions of Peace with Justice in Israel-Palestine. Um, and then we were sort of struggling, well, you know, if we can't get beyond this teeny-weeny choir, what can we do? And... Um, one of the people in the group was also, there were a number of physicians, and he said he'd worked on stuff in El Salvador using uh, medicine and human rights as a way to understand El Salvador. Maybe we could do that in uh, Israel-Palestine. So we started in 2003 organizing health and human rights delegations to the region. We started small. We coalitioned with Physicians for Human Rights Israel and Palestinian Medical Relief Society. And then we started going over year after year after year. Where did you go? I mean, we did this for like almost 15 years. We went all over the place. Um, so at, at the beginning, I was interested in going into um, Israeli hospitals because I was trying to figure out how do these doctors work in this context and what kind of social consciousness do they have. Um, and that got old very quickly. What do you mean? Uh, um, well, I got to, to understand what the, what the blindness was and what the strengths of their system was. And it became less interesting to me because I wanted to know how were Palestinians surviving and what kind of um, institutions they had. You mean and, like the West Bank and Gaza yeah, as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I'll just tell you uh, a little interesting vignette. The, my department head um, had, had worked in Israel and was a big Zionist. And he was one of the kind of people who would take delegations of American doctors to visit the terrorism response in Israel and that kind of thing. So the first time I was going to go, I went to him and I said, I'm going to go and I'd really like to talk to Israeli doctors. And we had this very civil conversation. And then I said, 
could you give me the name of some of your colleagues? And he said, no. And it was like he'd slapped me across the face. And I said, why? And he said, because you are a danger to the Jewish people, which was my first. <laughs> I had somebody say that to me once. That's funny. <laughs> my first clue that this was going to be more complicated than I thought. Okay. You are a danger to, to That's the a Jewish quote. people. That's a quote, right. I mean, I, I wrote to he the later, Jewish people. To the entire Jewish people, <laughs> little me. Um, that's so a, that's it a, was that's, really. That's, that's, a, that's a statement worth kind of thinking. It's worth remembering, just, yes. just letting it sink in for just right. a moment, you know. <laughs> you are as a danger to right, the Jewish right. people. So, but it was a taste of the kind of pushback that I was going to get. Was he Jewish? Oh, absolutely. He was very Jewish. Um, I was at Beth Israel Hospital. Oh, okay. You know, that hospital was started in, I think, 1916 because Jews couldn't get admitting privileges at the Harvard Hospital. So it was very Jewish. We had Yom Kippur off. You know, it was like a very Jewish hospital and proud of it, you know. When yeah. we merged with the deaconess, the first question was, will we still have Yom Kippur off, you know? Um, so it was an interesting place. No Christmas decorations, yeah. Um, no Christmas decorations. So um, anyway, so, it, you know, I got a, quite an education um, going into the West Bank, working in clinics. So this uh, is starting when? When did you start? So I first went in 2004, because I couldn't go in 2003. And then I went almost yearly until the pandemic. I mean, I just went year after year. Uh, every year to work at different hospitals throughout the West it, Bank it and wasn't, Gaza? It wasn't so much working in hospitals. It was coalitioning in solidarity with different groups like Palestine Medical Relief Society. And we would say, where can you use us? And they'd say, well, you know, the gynecologist and this in Janine, this has truly happened, um, is at some conference in Jordan. Could you go do her clinics? And I would show up and do her clinics with a translator, which was a very uh, challenging and difficult. Do her clinics mean see her patients? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, or we went on the Saturday mobile clinics with Physicians for Human Rights Israel. So tell me about that experience a little bit. So you're in Janine working as an OBGYN with Palestinian women. Yeah. You don't speak Arabic. They right. probably, many don't speak English. No, no necessarily. one speaks English, no. Tell me about that experience. Well, um, I did this kind of thing for a couple of years. Um, and it was, first of all, incredibly difficult um, because Absolutely. I didn't understand enough of the culture. I didn't speak the language. You know, I could spend 10 minutes trying to convince the woman that she actually needed a pelvic exam because the other doctor never did pelvics or did an ultrasound. And well, did I you replace think... a woman doctor? Yeah, or... I replaced a woman doctor. Woman doctor. Um, so I was like a Martian that landed, you know. On... Was there a trust issue? Um, because of the culture? Because... I don't, th it was just more confusion than lack of trust. And then, you know, I didn't know all the medications. It was just, I felt like I was bearing witness to a very dysfunctional system and I was getting this amazing um, education and what women's lives were like, but I wasn't being that helpful. You so know? how did you overcome these difficulties you described? Um, I talked with the translator. I did my best. I mean, that's and what I did. you convinced them to get a pelvic exam, for example? Or not. Or, you know, or and not. then I was like, oh, okay, there's this issue here. And, oh, people don't take their clothes off. And, oh, no one gets preventive care. And, oh, you know, there's no mammography here. And there's a breast lump on this woman. And so people say, well, she has to see a surgeon. And I want to do an ultrasound. And, you know, it's like, well, there's so many checkpoints between her and the, and the surgeon. And, you know, I mean, it was a different calculus. Everything was a different calculus. So that really educated me as to the impact of the occupation on healthcare. Or, you know, there was a hospital that had a CT machine, but there was a part missing and it was stuck at a checkpoint. Where was this? Um, this was in Hebron. I mean, these are, you know, old this memories. This is 2000, um, Well, that was uh, probably mid-2000s. So there's a CT machine, but there's a part missing because it's stuck at the checkpoint. Right. I mean, 
things like that just is like whoa um but besides doing uh medical stuff and you know the pediatricians saw kids and the you know did everybody have similar experiences um because I, I think that i think that you're you're you know your specialty is, is, is slightly more sensitive and difficult, yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. especially when uh, yeah. you're talking the, about a I think, the pediatri I think it was easier for, for the pediatrician. pediatrician. Yeah. Because. Yeah, yeah. um, or an orthopedic surgeon. Or right, somebody. right. So, but our contribution to healthcare was minimal. It was more um, acts of solidarity. It was more um, women understood that these crazy Americans came all the way here and, were will and you know, took an endless ride and a taxi to get to their village and that they felt seen. That was part of what we were doing. But it was also... Um, the, our colleagues, our Palestinian colleagues, felt that they were in, we were in solidarity with them, which was it was more solidarity. So the move from uh, I'm curious about just as a growing up as an American Jewish woman, and and granted you were you you were politically aware, yeah. and you were politicized right. and, and all of that, but it's not an obvious step even with what you describe as your politicization mm -hmm. and your experiences. It's still not an obvious step to feel solidarity, to want to express solidarity. Mm -hmm with Palestinians, right. you know, right. by and large, American Jewish right. community is, is nowhere near there, even Got the it. ones who are very political Got and progressive. It. What was it? Um, <clears throat> I think it was a mixture. I think as a U.S. citizen who's funding this and as a Jewish American who has this crazy state that says it speaks for the Jews, I felt very responsible. So I felt like I can't turn my back on this. And it became more of a passion for me because I felt so part of the pro I felt like I was coming from part of the problem and so I had to do what I could do to fix whatever I could fix or to alert people to what's going on or to use my you know white privilege to get people to see what's happening so you know besides doing some medical work we did I did a lot of um, interviews like with groups like stop the wall and um, you know the group in Hebron uh, with Isa Amru and you know we just we made the rounds of every um, so progressive that medicine. This is now just yeah really human just rights. So it was health rights. and human rights. So gotcha. there was a big human rights focus. Yeah. And then you know we would we started making um, human connections. So we'd stay with families. We'd stay in refugee camps. I went to Gaza three times. You know I. You talk about hold on. Let's talk about <laughs> going to Gaza for a minute. Yeah. So the first time you went to Gaza was when? Um, I think it was probably 2005, because Iyad al-Saraj was still alive. 2005 was also the so-called disengagement, where, where the Israeli government pulled out right. all the settlers right. and locked up Gaza. Right. So did you go before that or after that, do you remember? Mm, you know, I'd have to go back and look at my notes. I don't remember. You don't remember? I do remember that um, uh, Rafa was completely, they had just created the buffer zone, so we walked through miles of rubble. You came in through Rafah? No, no. We oh, did a tour of Gaza. Oh, I see. And that was my first experience of what does the consequence of war look like? What does it look like to stand in this sea of miles of rubble and see children's toys and broken cups and little kids' books? And where, under, where was all this? Where did you it see was all in, this? It's the buffer zone between oh, Egypt. Just, just, just throw. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, so that was the first time I kind of got a glimpse of like so the consequence. So you came in? We came in you through Ares, yeah. on the Israeli right. side, and, and then we you go through Hosted this... by um, the Gaza Community uh, Mental Health Program. How long did you stay? Um, that was probably five or six days, something like that. And what did you do there? Well, um, we did a lot of bearing witness, and we... Um, to what? To what the realities of life were, like going to the buffer zone and talking to people 
who um, were still hanging on on the edges so of medical, the buffer. Um, it was all mental health stuff. And so because we were hosted by a psychiatric group, mental health group, um, we, um, some people saw patients with them. Sometimes we talked with staff. We you know, saw what their um, uh, facilities were like. And, you know, we talked with people like from OCHA and you know, other human rights-y kind of places. How many people were you in the group? Um, that was probably five or six, something like that. And when you saw the facilities, this is, you know, this is almost 20 years ago. What, what did you see? What was your impression? Uh, my impression was that this was an incredibly difficult place to be doing anything and that I was talking to people who were so principled and so... Um, resilient about what they were doing and so determined. What do you mean principled? Um, well, here I was a Jewish American and we were able to connect as people who respected human rights as, um, you know, I was someone who wanted to let the outside world know what their reality was and people were very eager to talk. And they, they knew that you were Jewish? And they knew I was it always publicly matter, Jewish. No, it did matter to me. I wanted, you know, I kept meeting people who'd never met a Jew who wasn't a soldier. And so one of the things I was doing was just having that experience with people to see, you know, there, there is a Jewish person standing here who doesn't want to take anything from you, who doesn't want to kill you, who doesn't want to hurt you. What's that like? You know, so we had these amazing, intense moments um, because it was just, you know, that was the reality. Um, it was also, you know, incredibly traumatized, you know, secondary trauma for me. You know, every time I go to Gaza, I come back and it takes me months to recover because it's, it's such an oppressed place. And it's like, this is optional. People don't have to live this way. This is because of the policies of the Israeli government. Um, and, you know, my government's paying for this. And, you know, you pick up a, a, a canister and it has USA written. On, I mean, it's not a subtle finding. <laughs> um, so this all led to a deeper and deeper engagement, more and more connections, more human connections. Um, the group I was working with in Boston um, morphed into different, you know, political groups, but um, we set up an exchange program between Al-Quds University Medical School and Harvard, and so then we started hosting Palestine. When, when was this? When did we set that up? Yes. Um, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Um, I don't know, maybe 2010? You know, okay. I don't well, Something around, in around, that yeah. ballpark. Yeah, just so, you know, my house became the one of the few houses in Boston that had Palestinian medical students staying. And sometimes we'd have one and sometimes we'd have five. And, you know, there were a couple of other people who hosted them. And then I got to know all these young people. So, and they, went to med so they went to Harvard Medical School? They, they did, a, they did a, um, like um, a six-week rotation through Harvard Medical School, through a Harvard hospital. And, you know, guess what? They were, their English was impeccable. They were beautifully educated. They could keep up with the Harvard students without any trouble. They were brilliant. Yeah. Like, come on. Um, so then I had this um, intense connection with each of these students. And then, you know, the next time I'd go, I'd have to go visit their families and then I'd get to know more about, you know, one thing built on another. So um, that became part of the way of talking about this was to talk about healthcare and human rights because whether you're a Zionist or not, you know it's not okay for women to deliver at a checkpoint and bleed to death. You know, that's like not okay in anybody's book. So it's, it was like a vehicle to be able to talk about this. And um, the way that I dealt with the, the level of sort of secondary trauma that I was having being there was to write. So I started just writing like crazy. I, I did not go to sleep at night. When did you start writing? Um, 
I think from the start, but I got much more um, uh, compulsive about, you know, I did not go to bed without having a complete uh, writing of what happened that day. So every day while you were there? Yeah. I was See, like I famous for someone who didn't writing. sleep, you know, I didn't sleep. I, you know, people would be all asleep and I'd be in the stairway writing. First I did it on tape and then I was like, that's ridiculous because then I have to transcribe it all. So what See, I, the reason I ask is because my process, I can never write when I'm in it. Uh huh. I can only write once I'm back. Yeah, no. And then I open the door and yeah. it all comes out. No, no, out. I have to I do it never write when I'm day there. by day. So I, I come home with copious amounts of and information. And did you intend to publish it? Did you so publish? what happened was that um, in uh, 2003, I um, ruptured a disc and I was out of work for two months and then sort of went back, not feeling good, blah, blah, blah. And two years later, I had a spinal fusion, and I was out of work for a year and a half. And during that time, um, a friend of mine who's an editor said, you know, you've got to take all of stuff and write a book. And I was like, yeah, right. I'm on Percocet. I'm miserable. I'm going crazy. She said, write that book. So I did. And um, being a very goal-oriented person, I said, I'm not writing a book unless I have a publisher, which was a ludicrous thing to do. Um, so I wrote to all my academic friends and said, I need a publisher. And out of the blue, um, Pluto Press uh, emailed me and said, I want to publish you. And it's a, it's a kind of funny story because I was like, oh my God, now I have yeah, to write a book. Exactly. <laughs> so I started and they wanted, you know, the table of contents and the marketing plan. You know, so I did this for a while and I thought, this is ridiculous, I can't do this. So I stopped answering him, Roger Swanningbrook. Right, right. And then a couple of months later he said, I'm going to be in New York, meet me there. And I'm like, Alice, this publisher is chasing you. Do not pass this up. So I loaded up with Percocet. My husband drove me to New York. I got into my nice clothes. I met him at a fancy restaurant. He's there with his ponytail and his sneakers. And he says, look, you have a story to tell and I want to publish it. And I was like, okay, okay, fine, I'll do it. So that became my uh, project for my uh, leave. And what was it published? Okay, so Broken Promises, Broken Dreams was published. What was the title again? Say it again. Broken Promises, Broken Dreams, Stories of Jewish Trauma and Resilience. And Jewish, tra Jewish and Palestinian Trauma and Resilience. Jewish and Palestinian. So you, spoke, you, talk, you talked about Jewish trauma. What, what was the Jewish because trauma? it was my journey. So, so, so your trauma. It was more um, coming from a Zionist family, anti-Semitism, Holocaust, blah, 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 love of Israel. Oh my God, look at the occupation. You know, I, I was getting everybody in. And, and <laughs> you go... Just... I did the whole sweep. Um, but mostly, each chapter was about someone who taught me something, an Israeli or a Palestinian. So each one of these things you just laid out is a chapter, not a book. No, each one's a chapter. Okay. Each one it's a journey. A it's a personal journey. Yeah, 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 um, and then journeys. a second edition was published and was translated into Hebrew and German. And so I got the sort of like, ooh, that was fun. Hebrew. Well, yeah, I, I was very determined to get it published in Hebrew and Arabic. Um, so I found a publisher in um, Haifa. I don't even remember the name of it. I actually it went to visit him and published it in Hebrew. I spent a lot of time trying to find an Arabic publisher and could not find one. So they translated some of they the uh, published yeah, I paid for a translator. translation. Yeah. Okay, that's very interesting because I mean, my, none of my stuff is published yeah. Hebrew at all. I've, I felt yeah. like, hey guys, you got to know this stuff. Okay. So then um, what happened was that um, I got the sort of the writing bug and I started writing for like Mondo Weiss and you know, I had, um, for about seven years, I had one, every year, once a year, the Boston Globe would publish an op-ed by me about Israel and Zionism and Palestine. Mm -hmm. And then they decided not to do that anymore. But, you know, I started getting published, so it was, this is interesting. Um, 
And so then I was... And were in, you still practicing medicine? Yeah. Or by that, you were still yeah. practicing medicine? Yeah. Um, so then what happened was that I was in uh, Israel and the West Bank uh, right before the 2014 war. And I was like nuts because I could just see that this was how you make a war. You add a little of this and you add a little of that and you stir it up and you poke someone in there. And this, there was going to be this horrific war in Gaza. And it was like, my blogs are like screaming like, hello, hello, do you see what's happening? Blah, blah, blah. So I got screaming home. Screaming to who? To whoever would read my blogs. I, you, know, I, I, you know, to the world, to the universe. I was just, it was so clear to me the dynamic yeah, of what was happening sure, yeah. and that no one was paying attention. So I get home and the publisher of Just World Books Hello. tells me, Helena, and she said, I've been reading your blogs and they need to be a book. And I was like, oh, a publisher drops out of the sky and wants to publish my blogs. Fine. So she did a, like, a very quick, three months later, the book came out. Um, and then she, you know, she had the dibs to do a second book. So we decided for the second book to um, take a much broader sweep of blogs clean them up because they were all written, you know, in hallways and on buses and things, and to write more analysis. So my last book was Condition Critical, Life and Death in Israel-Palestine. Um, and meanwhile, I... What's it about? Um, it's about my blogging day to day, you know, like my compulsive blogging every day. Um, but, but it's also... there's got to be a theme. I mean, the book's... Uh, the theme, yeah, no, random. the theme is the impact of occupation, human rights violations, all the stuff that I bore witness to. Um, and, you know, analysis about um, the behavior of Israel and imperialism and colonialism and settler colonialism. You know, I got more sophisticated as I... And these two books, just to stop there for a minute, what, what kind of response did you get? What kind of... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I book toured. I, you know, it's a little publisher. I did the best I could to market it. I, I, I don't have a good sense of how many... No, but I mean, in terms of response, was there any response from anybody... Well, Jewish I would do friends, a book tour I mean, and, are... you know, people would come and there would be one. I mean, sometimes people would scream and yell and have to be taken out by the police. And sometimes people were all like, thank you for writing this book. I mean, the whole spectrum. Um, and, and then in the midst of this, I accidentally made this documentary film, uh, Voices Across the Divide. Oh, before you get to that, I have to tell you something. So you talk about all these just absolutely unbelievable experiences. Mm -hmm that would, each, each one of which would fill out a whole life. Mm -hmm. You're talking about them like, like mm -hmm. and it reminds me, and maybe that's, that's where, you, I don't know, maybe it's you, but maybe it's, it's, it's <laughs> because when I talk to Palestinians, like I'm in touch with you know, friends in, in Gaza, and I worked with some yeah. young writers in Gaza and stuff like that, and that's what they do. They'll go, well, yeah, so, so in 2008, da -da -da -da, all these people were killed, da -da -da, we attacked, and there was a, uh, there was a blockade. Mm -hmm. and, then two, and then 2009, we were, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, slow down, slow down, slow down. So tell me again, what happened in 2008? Oh, so talk about that. Yeah, you yeah. know, So your house was blown up, yeah, right. and your neighbor's children were right, killed in right. front of your very, uh, but slowed right. this thing out. And it's interesting, because you talk the same way. You yeah. go, and each one of these things, is a I'm big like, thing. whoa, whoa let, let's let that sink in for a right. minute. So you wrote two books about your just incredibly deep and, and, and thoughtful experiences, seeing the enormous human rights abuses, right. seeing the conditions of hospitals in the West Bank, and the, the conditions as a result of the... Right. Basically, you saw the results of, of this oppression in the areas that you, mm -hmm. you know... That, 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 that I could see. That, right. that are specific for, you know, to your field, um, and, and, and beyond the human rights as well. 
and you wrote about it. Um, that's a lot. Now, and again, I, I'm, I'm going to go back to this issue of you being a Jewish American woman mm-hmm. and spending so much time and, and, and mm-hmm. putting in so much thought and effort into this issue and feeling responsible. And I can't but think, well, wait a minute, why, why, you know, why are there not like you know, 10,000 mm-hmm. you know, Jewish American women doctors who are doing this? Mm-hmm. Where are they? And how is it not? Mm-hmm. How is it that they are seeing what you saw? And you know, you, you took, you made an effort to see more, but basically, yeah. And you're just not there. Right. And we talked about this earlier before we started recording about, you know, about this issue of the very, very progressive American Jews who are parts of all these organizations and are, you know, for all the right, you know, support all the right causes and all the right issues. And then you talk about Palestine, and it's done. So let, talk to me about that, what you think that's about. Why is it done, and why was it not done with you? Why is it done with them? Right. Why was it not done with you, and right. can we learn something from right. this? I mean, I think that people are you know, progressive except Palestine yeah. people right. who are otherwise very decent, lovely people because um, Jews are very um, invested in their victimhood, their story of being the big victim with the Holocaust, and that for Jewish people to admit that there was, uh, that the price of founding the state of Israel was the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians is so painful and so um, out of their imagination that they can't bear to go there. And also, because no one wants to be the bad guy. No one, and Jews, I mean, my mother used to say, you know, Jews are moral people. They don't rape. They don't steal. They only take what's theirs. My Jews are decent people. And everybody wants to be that decent person. And I understand that. We all want to be that, that. I do this because I want to be a decent person. But once you make that connection, then you have to be in a place of apology and reparations and recompense and mending the ills. And People don't want to go there. And I, I understand why they don't want to go there. So how did you end up going there? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. But you had asked me about the response to me, and I, I just came, thought of this story where um, at my department with the very Zionist chief, um, people would go, um, you know, there was an earthquake in Afghanistan, and some obstetrician would go off to Afghanistan and do blah, blah, blah. And then they would come back and do grand rounds. And I thought, well, if they can do grand rounds, then I should do grand rounds. So I petitioned. And here, I've been at this hospital for decades. Um, and I said, I want to do a grand rounds. What's a grand rounds? Oh, a grand rounds is a um, once a week meeting in an academic hospital. But I think community hospitals probably do this too, where there are educational events. And sometimes it's, you know, how to read fetal monitor tracing and how to do better electrolyte balance. But sometimes it's more about the world. And um, I felt as a staff member who travels to this place and knows a lot about this place that I should be allowed to talk about it. And he said no. And he said no and he said no. So, you know, I felt, oh. So finally he left. And I thought, now's my chance. So there was a temporary chief and I said to her, I want to do a grand rounds on the impact um, of the Israeli occupation on healthcare and human rights. And she said yes because she wasn't Jewish and wasn't Zionist, and she didn't know any better. Um, and I said, fine. And I was going to do, you know, 
UN statistics, you know, not politically overtly any, you know, I was, I was at a hospital presenting facts about human rights violations. Uh, so when my uh, Grand Rounds was announced, she got 100 emails demanding that this Grand Rounds be canceled. From who? From my peers, oh. from doctors in the hospital. I had trained at this hospital. I had worked with everybody there. I was well respected, but this was a line, the Progressive Accept Palestine line. And so she called me into her office and she said, look, I'm going to let you do this, but don't screw up. <laughs> That'd be good. So I was like, thanks a lot. So um, this was sort of anxiety provoking, but I, you know, overprepared as usual. And I called all my friends who were in the healthcare field and I said, you come to this Grand Rounds. The place was packed. The opposition did not show up. I gave a very professional, data-based, with all my photos that, you what know. What year was this? I'm sorry. Oh, what year was this? God. More or less. You're asking me for things I don't remember. More or less. Um, early, two thousand, maybe 2010, 12, something, okay. you know, that kind of thing. And everybody lived. But, and people applauded, and I got a standing ovation, you know. So that's the range. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, go on. So, that, so you wrote these two books. So, you know, I've written Broken Promises and then the two books with Just right. World right. books. And then, and then you made um, a movie by accident. Hmm? And then I made, made the movie by accident. By accident. Um, you know, I was planning to write a book about the stories Palestinians tell me spontaneously when I'm talking. And um, the interviews got filmed and I was convinced to make this into a film. And it turned into a four-year project. It was one of a very powerful experience for the me. The title is? Uh, Voices Across the Divide, available on Vimeo. Um, you know, premiere. So, so it's available on Vimeo, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, there's a website with resources and guides. Why do you call it Voices Across the Divide? Um, well, partly because the film is um, Palestinians telling the story of the history of the founding of the State of Israel and the ethnic cleansing of Palestine and 67. And these are Palestinians that you talk to here in the U.S.? These, yeah, this is all U.S. Palestinians. This had to be easy. Spoke First English. Generation. Some of them um, were, um, you know, came, you know, people who had experienced the Nakba came. The Nakba yeah, everybody themselves. had to have experienced whatever they were talking about. So I wove together the whole history by taking people's stories and weaving them together. And the filmmaker, the, uh, the co-film editor person, Sharon, um, I'm now blocking on her last name, Sharon, um, um, said, you have to be in this movie. And I said, no, this is not my story. And she said, no, no, you have to be in. And we had this whole conversation. And we decided I had to be in to invite people into the dance. So I had to be, hi, nice Jewish lady, blah, blah, blah. Look what I found out. Oh, my God. You know. So these were voices across this divide. I was also mirroring uh, a book title of my mother's, which was Voices uh, from the Holocaust, um, because she was also a... Do you create a parallel here? Yeah, uh, yeah. Very, I was very, evoking very, a parallel. Yeah, 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 a parallel, yeah. yes. So, and then, you know, the movie... Did uh, you get in trouble for that? From my mother? Well, in general, I mean, no. for no, no, you know, it was subtle a little enough. independent it was, movie. No one's it gonna, was subtle, subtle. It was enough. subtle, right? And you know, it it won an award at the Palestine Boston Palestine Film Festival, and has a little life of its own. Every year at the anniversary of the Nakba, a couple of different groups show it, and I am on a panel, and so it lives on. And I think it still stands as a very powerful yeah. documentary, but also very accessible to people who don't know. It's for people who don't know. Yeah. Okay. 
So I'm like living my life and then I'm retiring and then I'm moving to Seattle to be near my daughter who's going to have a baby and life goes on. And um, I was giving a talk and this Quaker teacher says to me, you should write a book for kids on Palestine. And I said, I don't write children's books. I read children's books. I do not write them. And that night I dreamt a picture book. It's very interesting how resolute you are about something. I'm very resolute. And then the next day... Right. You just go I'm a other. cliff jumper, you know. <laughs> the next day something happens. So you, you know, you dream way. a picture book. You write it down, and you get yeah. How many words is a picture book? So this sparked my interest in this topic. Um, so I got here and realized I know bupkis about picture books or anything about children's books. So I joined. Bupkis meaning nothing. Just bupkis is Yiddish know. for nothing. You know, I did sing in the Yiddish chorus for twenty years, so I know lots of Yiddish curse words and things. Um, so anyway, so I... Did you know, I, Yiddish from the chorus? No, no, I'm being funny. <laughs> <I'm singing. laughs> I can sing heroic marching songs in go. Yiddish and lullabies. Um, there go. So anyway, so I, uh, you know, took courses and joined societies for writers and blah, 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 and figured out... So in other words, you had no idea how to do this, the bupkis so reference. I, and so I you taught just, myself. So you taught yeah, yourself. Yeah. And I got into a so critique. So this is not, this is again, this is one of those things, you're rushing through it. Yeah. But, but this is a big this deal. Is how so I somebody said to right. you... You do write this. a kid's yeah. book, you say, absolutely not. And, and then the next day it, you right. get up and you start learning right, it, right. taking the time and the effort right. to learn how to do because this. Because it was like a whole population that knew nothing. So it was like not talking to the choir. I could like, if I could write books for kids, then kids would learn about this. Wouldn't that be exciting? So isn't it too sad and tragic and horrible to talk to kids about this? How do no. you overcome that? No. So, um, so my picture book turned into a middle grade chapter book. That's like 7 to 12. And... That well, book, 7 to 12 years old. Years old. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that book, which is yet to be published, has an interested publisher, but anyway, it's a long yeah. story, um, is about a little boy and his grandmother. And the little boy is a fourth grader. He has a sister who's in high school who wears a hijab. You know, they get into all sorts of trouble in school. Because, and they live in Palestine. No, no. This, they live in, um, actually, in Worcester, but it never okay. says Worcester. Okay. And so he gets into this big crisis of who is he? Why does his name have so many Muhammads in it? Why does his mother pack hummus every day? You know, all the things that a kid might get into trouble with. And his grandmother decides to tell him her story. Is this based on a true story? No, I made it up. You made it up. Um, so the grandmother's story is written in the first person present. So she gets these flashbacks. So there's the little boy and his sister and the sister, you know, they call her a terrorist. And, all, you know. and then the grandmother, I take all the major points in the history of Palestine and create a story of the grandmother's experience of that at that age. And so, you know, I took, you know, I mixed all the people I'd interviewed for my movie and all the people I'd met in Palestine. And, you know, I created a story that was now, plausible. Now, this hasn't been published yet. No. It needs to be published. Absolutely. Um, so it's not a sad, I mean, it's not about, it's not a tragic movie. It's about a boy discovering who he is. And, you know, it's all, and there's a tremendous, Tremendous amount of food in it because Palestinians are yeah. fabulous with food and they're always feeding you. And you know, my critique who said they're always hungry when they listen to me read my <laughs> chapters. You know, um, and when you write a book and you start sending it out to publishers, you know that's like sending it off somewhere. So you're supposed to start the next book. So I got this idea. I wanted to write something that was much more problematic and not such a nice story. So I thought I could do a graphic novel because you can do a lot of violence in a graphic novel but not have to say anything about violence draw? no i would be the writer oh and, and i would find somebody. an artist so this idea came to, and i was also very worried about 
what they call writing outside of your lane. Are you, I'm sorry, are you familiar with, uh, with the book Mouse? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So I read all the graphic novels and Joe Sacco and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I got this idea. I would, and I also worked with a graphic artist who happened to be living in the apartment building I was in. Um, so I learned how to physically, you know, it's written like a play. Scene yeah. one, panel one, blah, blah, blah. So I wrote this um, novel about a cat that lives in the Shuafat refugee camp because I felt like I know cats and I can't be accused of writing not in my own voice because it's a cat. The but mouse is about mice that you wrote about a cat. Yeah, you know. But it's a cat who, who is like, represents Palestinian kids and is but very why feisty. Let me stop you again. Why Shuafat refugee camp? I picked Shuafat because no one knows there's a refugee camp in Jerusalem. And I thought it was very important for people. Do you know people there? Have you been there? Um, I haven't been there, but I've been to a lot of other lot, refugee yeah. camps. And, yeah. um, and also because at some point, the cat, when the water gets shut off, um, the cat decides to go to Jerusalem. So I wanted to have a refugee camp that she could easily follow the, the, the rail that, uh, uh, the, what's it called, the, the, light, light, the light rail? The light rail. Um, into Jerusalem with her other cats and bear witness to Jerusalem. And I gotta then, tell you, this is absolutely brilliant. It's very smart. And so, um, <laughs> I'm glad you agree. <laughs> I'm glad we agree. <laughs> so the problem is that I wanted to have a Palestinian graphic artist. And so I've worked with several that fell apart for all the reasons that things fall apart in Palestine. Do you have one now? Cause I, I do have I one think. now that lives in Gaza, which is a hard place to be writing, exchanging artwork. But he has done half of the book, and I'm now... Um, in the process of going through all of his artwork and editing it and upgrading it. Can you tell us who he is, his name? Um, I think it's premature to do that. And I don't, okay. I want to see the book finished. <laughs> and I have an interested publisher for that. Um, so while I was trying to work this through, because, you know, dealing with an artist who doesn't speak English well, who did all the dialogue right to left instead of left to right, and we had to get everything left to right, you know, lots of things but a brilliant artist. Um, I decided um, to write a memoir in verse. I know this is crazy, but I really wanted to write about becoming a feminist doctor and growing up in the 50s and you know, not getting to, to stop before I hit Palestine. So it's until I'm about 45 or so. Um, and these poems just started coming to me. So I actually wrote a memoir in verse um, and there is a publisher who wants it, but they want to publish it as a, you know, um, what they call hybrid model, which is I put in 50% of the cost and they put in, and I'm not, I want it to be really published. So anyway, so while I was trying to find that publisher, um, my daughter had a home birth and I thought, you know, I'm an obstetrician and I went to her home birth. I actually caught the baby and it was this incredible experience. You know, I should find out more about home birth in Seattle because in Massachusetts, home birth was very taboo and it was kind of underground. And it turns out um, home birth in Seattle is one of, it's one of the, um, has a home birth school for direct entry midwives, and it's one of the preeminent midwifery schools in the country. So I've been just interviewing all these midwives, and it's just a whole nother sort of feminist medical history stuff. So that's all going on while I'm trying to get these books published. So um, that's what I'm doing. You're a woman of many, many talents. <laughs> many talents. You know, I'm really glad. I'm really glad we're having this interview. This is. I'm really enjoying this because, like I said, our we met at the intersection yeah, of Palestine, yeah, yeah. but you've taken this right. to a whole like ten different amazing, direct, incredible directions. So, the, other, the other thing I do, um, I work with We Are Not Numbers. I yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So, I, I do too. So, yeah. so I, did, I did at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, this is sort of what happens to me. I was a mentor. This is a 
a group that mentors uh, Gazan writers 18 to 30 and gets their English to a place where it can be published on the website. Everybody's writing their personal stories. Again, a really powerful way to know Very what's intense. happening. Um, you know, and then I get asked to be in charge of all the mentors and story of my life. So I'm in charge of the mentoring process. I match all the mentors. I help all the writers that have mentors that aren't responding fast enough, all that stuff. So I got very involved with this organization and- I was involved in it for a little bit. Yeah, yeah no, yeah, you're yeah. on my list of mentors. Yeah, I mentored <laughs> two or three. And yeah. one of the girls I mentored, uh, Mariam, just she's in back in Gaza and she just sent me just this absolute cutest video of her daughter yeah. as the missiles are falling. Oh my God. I'll show oh it to you God. after. I mean, yeah. it's absolutely the cutest thing yeah. on earth. So I want to talk about a little more about politics now. Okay. Kind of big picture politics. So you mentioned a couple of times being an American, feeling responsible, being American, feeling responsible, being American, feeling responsible. So what is happening in America? Why is America paying for this? Why is America sending weapons for this? Why are Americans just sitting quietly and letting it happen? I mean, it's a lot of questions. <laughs> but but why? I mean, because yeah. this is something. This is right. a, this is like the the three point eight billion dollar question, right. right? Why? What's happening here? Can you? What do you think is happening here right. that is that is that is? I don't know, like fundamentally wrong here. Well, there are so many fundamentally wrong things about what's going on in America. First of all, so you're sort of implying if people knew they would be different. You know? I don't know. I'm I'm asking you what you think. But let's okay. talk. I agree with you. The many things fundamentally so, wrong. Let's so talk I about think this particular. Early on. The root of this, so, if you will. There are several layers to this. So, you know, post-World War II, guilt, Holocaust. Um, no one wants to be called an anti-Semite. Yeah, America had nothing to do with the Holocaust. America I know, but, but they the didn't Nazis. allow the immigrants to come here. You know, people right. who were fleeing Nazi Germany. A lot of guilt issues. So everybody was going to stand with Israel. And then I think Israel was very useful to American foreign policy. I'll just say one more thing about that. In the 1960s, in La Jolla, in San Diego, there were still homes... That, it, that when you bought them in the deed, it said they could not be sold to Jews. Yeah, no. In the 1960s. Um, now, La Jolla is My called, you know, parents is, is a bought Jewish a community. house in, so I was a uh, senior, 65, and there was a covenant in that neighborhood yeah. who were the first Jews to, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this is going this way is past the so, Holocaust and right, all this, right. yeah. So, but, so there was a whole stand with Israel, the whole everybody's a kibbutznik, blah, 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 socialist labor, we love Israel. Um, and then I think, um, as things uh, came along, the 67 war, the whole uh, propaganda about the 67 war and Israel's existential threat and people made Aliyah, and people bought that. Um, and so the, I just want to interrupt you again. So you're telling all of these processes and yeah. you were here as they were going and you never got swept in them, it seems no. like to me. So you're, you're kind of slightly away from I'm it. I'm a pre-med student. And you I, see I'm all like, this stuff happening. I'm, you know, you got to remember... I was trying to get into medical school. I was, you know, I, I was yeah, not for like, reason. yeah, I was yeah. not like tuned into all this stuff. Yeah. And I got very alienated by religion. So I wasn't like, you know, a super Jew when I got to college. Um, so that helped me not see yeah. all of this happening. Um, I think that the big turning point was 9-11 when um, people felt very afraid of Islamic terrorists, the whole turning point in what way? In terms of people really choosing not to think about the consequences of Israeli policy because they got swept up in this fear of the Islamic world and we've got to fight the terrorists and you know now Israel, you know, 
Israel said, the Israeli leaders said, now you understand our situation. You know, that, I think that people really bought that. Okay. Um, and so, and also people, you have the whole um, Christian evangelical movement, which exploded after 67. And it's not just white Christian evangelicals, it's Korean evangelicals, it's Hispanic evangelicals, it's an enormous swath of America. Um, takes the Bible very literally and really thinks that all... So are all these things happening organically yeah. or is this something from the outside influencing? Um, both. I think, it, you know, we are, we're both aware there's a huge propaganda industry, there's a huge, um, you know, Hasbara industry that, that keeps pushing all this stuff. It's like with the current um, IRA definition of anti-Semitism, uh, which, you know, the IRA, um, Israeli Holocaust Remembrance Alliance group in 2016, said, you know, had definition of anti-Semitism, the classic stuff, and then a lot of um, examples were any criticism of various forms of criticism of Israel. Yeah. They didn't mean that to be the final moment. It was a working document, a working but document. it got accepted. Um, State Department, states, everybody. Okay. Communities, colleges, right. churches. And now yeah. this is being pushed at every level. The Port Authority in Seattle adopted the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. Excuse me, it's yeah. a port. You know, this means that there are propaganda groups that are infiltrating at all these different levels, pushing for this to happen. Otherwise, why would, why would, yeah. why would this be? So there's a whole industry behind this um, that is making this kind of stuff happen. And you know, we just had a big fight here with the, um, I want to get this right, the King County Council, I think it is. Um, and they were going to, you know, someone comes up to a council member who knows nothing and says, you're against anti-Semitism, right? Oh, of course, you know, just sign here. And then we're like, whoa, 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 let's look at what this says. And we finally got them not to sign it and to, to reject the IRA definition. But, you know, any little schlemiel in every little council everywhere, you against anti-Semitism? Oh, yeah, well, sign here. So you can see how it just becomes the norm. And then, um, you know, there are all these moves to make um, criticism of Israel uh, inherently anti-Semitic. Well, this is across the country. Um, and then you have, you know, if you support boycott, um, you've seen the movie Boycott, you know. It's, it's very pernicious and it's going on all over the place. Yeah, and then are. you have a huge, I mean, let's not forget, you know, the military industrial complex that is all interwoven with Israeli military. That's a huge amount of moneyed interests and political interests um, that make it very hard to break that, break this wall. You're saying part of it's organic and part of it is just feeding this, whatever. Is right, feeding the monster. Or feeding the monster. Right, right, and, right. Because, right. you know, there are people that I know, and you may have heard of them, and you probably know, I'm not going to mention any names, but they say, oh, everything was great here, but then the Zionists came and corrupted America. Right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you don't agree with that? Um, I'm asking you as an American. I'm not asking. I'm not. I'm not I, I don't know honest. what corrupted America means. There's, you know, America is yeah, a yeah. settler colonial state long before Zionists came here. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, we're yeah. we're struggling with our yeah, enslavement yeah. of black people. Yeah, we yeah, have yeah. a lot of sins that we need to. That has to do with Zionism, with. but yeah, right. Zionism just done the list. Preceded that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but so. I think, I mean, the positive thing is that um, younger generations aren't buying this like the older generations did. The, you know, the sort of Holocaust generation is dying out. Um, I see when I go to universities that um, more and more young people are like, wait a minute, you know, if it's not okay um, to discriminate against 
people in the United States. Why is it okay to discriminate against Arabs in Israel? Yeah, I mean, young people are raising those issues. So I think that there may be um, a shift in American opinion, but Congress, Congress is owned by the Israel lobby. Now we have, you know, Rashida Tlaib and, you know, various- A couple of, yeah, more progressive. More progressive people, <clears throat> which would have been unheard of 20 years ago. So things are shifting, but it's shifting at a snail's pace. And how many people in Gaza are gonna die before there's a shift? So that's, a bit, that's the question I wanna ask you. Right. I mean, things are moving very, very, very slowly. Yeah. And, yeah. Many, and we know that there's gonna be another attack and we know right. that another Palestinian right. is gonna be killed right. in Hebron and we know another yeah, Palestinian yeah, yeah. is gonna be killed in Jerusalem. And we know, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an epidemic of, of murders in the communities in 1948 of murders. And yeah. So, do you, how do you think, I mean, this is a tough question, but do you think there's a way to accelerate this? Do you think there's a way that we can, that people of conscience can convince members of Congress and other elected officials, like you know, school board members, right, right, whoever right. it is, mayors, people right, that go on right. these junkets, that they need to stop? Right. Is there a way that we can kind of accelerate this process by, by, by facing these people, by confronting them? Right. Is there a way to do that, do you think? I don't know. I mean, I think we have to be loud and persistent, but we, you know, it's not like I have a staff of a hundred people that are tracking all of this and we all make our strategies. You know, that's what we're up against, right? Um, so I think we just have to keep doing what we're doing, but to do it louder and more often and more persistent. And, you know, it's like my representative in Congress is pretty hopeless on this. We meet with him. We have these endless conversations with him. You know, he's sort of a J Street two-stater, you know, I care about Palestinians, but kind of guy. He's not going to change. So, you know. Well, he's not going to change unless he's forced to change, unless he thinks his, yeah. his job's on the line. Right. And his job is not on the line. He's not going to be on the line. No. So it's tough, I think, but it's not that we shouldn't do it. You know, it's like um, uh, the guy who's um, the head of the Alberwad Children's Theater always says um, he does not have the luxury of despair. You know, so who are we to be despairing? I think it's a good place to stop. Thank you again for this conversation. It was a real pleasure talking to you. And um, see you next time. You're welcome. It was fun. <laughs>